Well, this morning we'll be addressing the matters covered in Genesis chapters 14 through 16. This is session 11 of LifeWay's Explore the Bible curriculum, and it's titled Impatience. The lesson statement is, God expects his people to patiently wait for his timing. And I suggest that we follow the outline I put on the board, which is, we will see the rescue, Genesis chapter 14, the promises, Genesis chapter 15, verses 1 through 5, the response to that, Genesis 15, 6, the confirmation in Genesis 15, 7 through 21, and the mistake, Genesis 16, 1 through 6, as well as verses 15 and 16. To me, it's a little unusual to stress the negative aspect of an attribute when we are normally taught to aspire to its positive counterpart. In today's case, it's impatience versus patience. But our text for today lends itself to that approach. In Mike Howard's online preview of this lesson, he defines patience this way. The capacity to accept or tolerate delay, trouble, or suffering without getting angry or upset. Impatience lacks that capacity. So, let me ask you, what tests your patience? Does anything test your patience? Traffic. Or I guess another way to put this question is uh, what tends to make you impatient? <laughs> what it just traffic? Doctor's visits. Doctor's visits. You go and you're for your appointment and, and you sit in the waiting room and you sit in the waiting room. You sit in the, and it's a delay. It's a delay. You've got things to do. What else? They fix that stuff, Jim. They, they put books and stuff you can even read. Well, yeah, at least you can read. educate yourself with six old, six month old magazine. Yeah. <laughs> uh, when I think of patience, I'm always reminded of John Bukema's story about the boot trial. Remember that? I'll repeat it for you. Uh, if I can find it in my stuff here, here it is. A teacher was helping a kindergarten student put on his cowboy boots. The weather had been rough, and so that morning everybody took their boots off when they came in, and uh, coats and everything. <clears throat> Even with her pulling and him pushing, the little boots didn't want to go on. By the time they got to the second, 
she got the second boot on, she had worked up a sweat. She almost cried when the little boy said, Teacher, they're on the wrong feet. <laughs> she looked and sure enough they were. It wasn't any easier pulling the boots off than it was putting them on. She managed to keep her cool as together they worked to get the boots back on, this time on the right feet. He then announced, these aren't my boots. <laughs> oh, she bit her tongue rather than get right in his face to scream. She wanted to, but she didn't. Why didn't you say so? Once again, she struggled to help him pull off the boots. No sooner had they gotten the boots off when he said, they're my brother's boots. My mom made me wear them today. <laughs> now she didn't know if she could laugh, should laugh or cry, but she mustered up what grace and courage she had left to wrestle the boots on his feet again. Helping him into his coat, she asked, now where are your mittens? He said, I stuffed them in the toes of my boots. <laughs> You can do all of that and keep your cool. That's patience. Oh, right. Rich Lloyd, who's the pastor of the First Baptist Church up in Newport, Tennessee, points out the openness of Scripture with these words. Part of my love of Scripture, especially the Old Testament, is the portrayal of our spiritual heroes with no cover-up. Abram, soon to be Abraham, was portrayed as a man of great faith, first answering God's call to go to a new land with an unknown future, and second, demonstrating his ability with Lot and allowing Lot to choose the prime choice of land. Yet, while waiting for the covenant God made with covenant God had made with Abraham to be fulfilled, Scripture doesn't not whitewash the temptation that faced Abram and Sarai to provide an heir a different way than God prescribed. And they're acting on this temptation because of his impatience with God's call and plan. And so that actually is an overview of today's lesson. Scott led us all last week through chapter 13, which ended with Abram's nephew Lot separating himself from Abram and choosing to settle near the evil city of Sodom. The Lord promising Abram and his descendants all the land of Canaan forever. And the Lord promising Abram offspring who would be more numerous than the dust of the earth. And Abram's responding properly to all of this by honoring Lord, the Lord with his worship. And so this morning let's turn in our Bibles to chapter 14 which I have called the rescue the rescue and those and this is not in your books by the way you need to refer to your the Bible your Bible or your device in those kings in those days King Amraphel of Shinar, King Arioch 
of Eleazar, King Ketorleo, Ketorleomer of Elam, and King Tidal of Goim, waged war against King Bera of Sodom, King Bersha of Gomorrah, King Shinab of Admah, and King Shemeber of Zeboam, as well as the king of Bela, that is Zor. All of these came as allies to the Sidon Valley, that is the Dead Sea. Now, let me just summarize all of this. I don't want to go through all those things all the time. Sometimes I may make a stab at them. Uh, back in those days, uh, the various cities were like city-states. The city and the immediate area around them were, was just like a state. And they each had their own kings. So there were lots of kings, as well as lots of turmoil. Keter <coughs> uh, Leomer evidently was the most powerful king uh, or the one with the most influence. He and his three allied kings made the other five kings in the region subservient. That is, these five had to make favors to the others in forms of, of tribute. And this had gone on for 12 years. For 12 years. And after 12 years has passed, then these five who were under the control of these four, said, we've had enough. We've had enough. We're not going to pay you anymore. And so that's what brought on this going to war. That's what all this was about. So the four kings went up against the five kings in battle. And guess what? The four kings won. Scattered the other troops. And they took possessions and they took hostages, which included Abram's nephew, Lot, who lived near the defeated city of Sodom. When Abram learned of this, he took 318, 318 of his servants and gave chase, eventually catching up and defeating the forces of Keterleomer, and his allies in recovering all the goods that had been taken, as well as all the hostages, including Lot. Upon Abram's return to the priest king, uh, upon his return, the priest king, whose name was Melchizedek, Melchizedek, Melchizedek of Salem, which uh, later became known as Jerusalem, came out with food for Abram, Abram's troops and recited a blessing on Abram, after which Abram gave him a tenth of all of the spoils they had recovered. The king of Sodom told Abram he could keep all the rescued material possessions, just return all the people who had been taken, which would have included Abram's nephew, Lot. But Abram returned everyone and everything except what his servants had eaten. Essentially, he rescued, he went to rescue 
not always good. He was interested in getting what? An entire chapter, chapter 14, is related to that. Continuing on into chapter 15, then, we get to the promises. The promises. Chapter 15. All right. After these events, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. God used visions and dreams in the Old Testament to convey his, his will. Dreams occurred during times of sleep, whereas visions often occurred when one was awake. And we're not told in this instance what Abraham, Abram saw, but we do know what, was, what Abram was told. which was this. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward will be very great. So the first is, do not be afraid, Abram. When people in the Bible are confronted by one of God's messengers, their immediate response is always fear. Fear. To which the messenger will respond with what? Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Fear not. <clears throat> Fear not. In Abram's case, however, I think uh, this is a, a statement of encouragement uh, and assurance. As the, the events of chapter 14 show, uh, Abram lived in a hostile environment, just like that area of the world today. Nothing has, has changed. I think the only time there's been peace in that particular area is under the Romans, which forced, when the Roman Empire just kind of forced peace, all right? No conflict, anyway. Next, he says, he's told, he says, the Lord spoke and said, I am what? Your shield. I am your shield. In other words, I am your protector. You have no need to be afraid. And your reward will be very great. And this is usually interpreted to refer to Abram having many descendants as his reward. However, I've read that the original text is, I am your shield, your very great reward. I, in other words, God says, I am your shield, and I am your very great reward. In other words, I'm all you need, Abram. I'm all you need. You can trust, trust me. 
verse 2. But Abram said, Lord God, what can you give me since I am childless and the heir of my house is Eli, Eliezer of Damascus? Abram continued, Look, you have given me no offspring, so a slave born in my house will be my, be my heir. So rather than responding, immediately in worship and gratitude uh, to these promises. Uh, Abram takes the Lord to task for what he has promised regardless, re regarding uh, numerous offspring. And I think, uh, kind of as a side, it's interesting uh, that the word Lord in this verse, if you're looking at it, is, 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 is not in all caps. He says, Lord God, but God is in all caps. The word translated here as Lord is really uh, Adonai, Adonai, the one who, who rules, the one who is sovereign. And note that the word God is all caps, and so the original there, text and being all caps, is Yahweh, Yahweh. So Lord God, uh, and this chance, so so Lord God is sovereign Lord. All right, the one who rules, the one who is sovereign. Now, Abram is in his mid eighties at this point, and his wife. Sarai is 10 years younger. She'd be in her mid-70s. Obviously, they had long awaited the birth of a child. And it was common practice, I've read, in those days for a servant to be the heir of a man who has died childless. Now, it's not clear why Abram didn't consider his nephew as a possibility, all right? His brother's job. So it's not so much that Abram didn't believe God's promise at this point, but at their age, he couldn't figure out how such could come to pass. Reading on. Now the word of the Lord came to him, This one will not be your heir. Referring, of course, to his servant. This one will not be your heir. Instead, one who comes from your own body will be your heir. It is though uh, the Lord Yahweh sat Abram down and gave him a stern talking to. God reiterates the fact that Abram was not going to be child, childless. He, being God, took him outside and said, Look at the sky and count the stars, if you're able to count them. Then he said to him, Your offspring will be that numerous. Well, this is similar to 
what God had told him before. Before, it says the grains of specks, specks of dust. All right, referring to specks of dust of the earth. Try counting the specks of dust. Try counting the stars and the sky. And you've been, we don't see it much now living near the city lights. You get far outside of the city. At, uh, on a good night, moonless night especially, the stars, they just fill the sky. They just fill the sky. There's so many. Of course, when you're around the lights like we are, you don't see many. Uh, but in Abram's day, that he saw many. He saw, saw many. Sean Thomas points out the following, which, by the way, I, I have no uh, way of refuting. He says, the stars visible to the human eye from Earth are somewhere between 5,000 and 10,000. Scientists believe our galaxy, the Milky Way galaxy, has something like 100 billion stars. They also believe there may be 200 billion galaxies in the universe, each of a hundred billions of stars. Uh, and, and of course, <laughs> try to count. I don't think God's limited uh, by these numbers. The point is, what God's saying is, Abram, uh, you're going to have a lot of descendants. You're going to have a lot of descendants. I know you're childless now, but you're going to be the father of a great blessed nation, just like I promised you. Believe my promise. So next we read of Abram's response in verse 6. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. That's a powerful statement. That's a powerful statement. And as our study guides point out, it's repeated in Romans 4, 3. It's repeated in Romans 4, verse 22. It's repeated in Galatians 3, 6. And it's repeated in James 2, verse 23. Abram believed the Lord and he credited to him as righteousness. Credit is an it's a uh, an account, accounting term that relates to assigning value or adding value to one's account. Eric Mitchell says in his commentary, this word translated as credited goes deeper than just adding to an account. The Hebrew term is impute, which means to ascribe an attribute or quality to someone by the virtue of an attribute or quality in another. So Abram was credited with having what he did not have in himself. Righteousness speaks of behavior that holds to a certain standard. Abram's belief met God's standard. Therefore, he was in a right standing with God. This righteousness did not come from anything Abram did or had done. It was just a uni unilateral act of God. 
Hebrews 11, 6 says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. 2 Corinthians 5, 21 reads, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So in, in reality, we are not that righteous. As Isaiah points out, our righteousness is like filthy rags. We've all sinned in thought, in word, in deed, and things not done. But in Christ, God counts or reckons, perhaps, consider or considers us righteous with the perfect righteousness of Christ, even though in and of ourselves we are not righteous. When, like Abram, we put our faith in him, our faith then is credited or reckoned or counted as righteousness. So, when I got saved, I was not that righteous, really. Certainly not righteous enough to uh, inherit heaven. But in Jesus, God counts or reckons you and me as righteous. And he counts Jesus' righteousness to you and your behalf. God doesn't judge me or you by the content, really, of our character, but by the content of his character. You are counted as righteous. That means straight with God so that the doors of heaven will open to you because of what Jesus did for you. <clears throat> so, Abram didn't earn it, right? He was given this righteousness. But God continued his dialogue with Abram with a confirmation beginning with verse uh, 7. He also said to him, that would be God speaking to Abraham, I am the Lord who brought you from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, Lord God, how can I know that I will possess it? And he said to him, Bring me three, a three-year-old cow, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. So he brought all these to him, cut them in half, and laid the pieces opposite each other. But he did not cut the birds in half. Birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. As the sun was setting, a deep sleep came over Abram, and suddenly great terror and darkness descended on him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know this for certain, your offspring will be resident aliens for 400 years in a land that does not belong to them and will be enslaved and oppressed. However, I will judge the nation they serve, and afterward they will go out with many possessions. But you will go to your fathers in peace, 
be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, they will return here for the iniquity of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. That was God's telling him that, look, eventually you're going to possess this land. You're going to do this. Eventually. It's going to take a while. The Amorites, are, I'm, I'm giving a chance. It's going to, they're going to be there. And actually, it's going to be over 400 years before this takes place. All of you, all your people will be captive. We know this is about their time, 400 years from the time they spent as slaves in Egypt before Moses brought them out under God's direction. So, it's interesting what is going on here. In verse, uh, the verse 17, when the sun has set, and it was dark, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch appeared and passed between the divided animals. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, I give this land to your offspring from the brook of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates River, the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, and Cadmonites, Hethites, Perizzites, and Rephaim, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. God was promising all of this land. And so the pot, flaming pot, and the torch walked between the divided. The animals had been cut in half and laid opposite, of, opposite sides of the path. And God walked between them, all right, sealing the covenant he was making with them. In those days, this was a ritual that uh, was used to solidify any kind of covenant between two parties. In other words, when you make a deal, when you make a deal with somebody or agree on something, we would make maybe a handshake, sign papers, you know, have it witnessed and no. Well, at that time, what you did, you cut these animals in half, and then you paraded down this path reciting what you were going to do in your behalf of, of the covenant, what you were going to do. And if you don't do it, you say, if I don't do this, cut me in half, just like these animals are. And so you're pledging your life in that. And so that's what was done. Uh, so in this instance, the covenant was uh, confirmation was made by only one party, the Lord God. This is because the uh, smoking pot, the flaming torch, rep a fire represented the Lord. That is the Lord Yahweh. In verse 18, where uh, in verse 18, where the Lord made a covenant with Abram, where it says that, is literally the Lord cut a covenant. The Lord cut a covenant, meaning referring to the animals, what had been done. And this is this, this, uh, that. We adapt that today, you know. We, talk, we still talk about that, don't we? 
we, we talk about making a deal, we cut a deal. It's, it's an agreement, cut a deal. All right? Or we cut a check instead of we make a check, right? We do our part, we write a check uh, from a debt, all right? We, write, we cut a check. Don't go on the other instances. That's where that comes from. That's where all that comes from. And finally, we come to the mistake, which is covered in verse six or chapter sixteen. Abram's wife Sarai had not borne any children for him, but she owned an Egyptian slave named Hagar. Now, we don't know. They had a lot of servants. Uh, we don't know. Oh, we're on this one's name oh, here. It's Hagar. May have come from their time in Egypt. Uh, because they had earlier, you know, when they first came and the famine hit, they, uh, Abram and uh, all of his household fled to uh, Egypt. So the king kicked them out. So maybe... That's where they acquired Hagar. We don't know that. But she was identified here as an Egyptian slave. So and that and we know in that day to be barren like Sarai was considered to be cursed by God. I'm, I assume that she was aware of the Lord's promise to Abram regarding having many offspring. So as we read this, it, it appears uh, the wheels of her mind were beginning to to turn as to how all of this was going to come about. And after all, she's getting on in age, getting on in years. So I think it I think it's uh, might be too harsh on Sarah to say she was scheming to find find a way around. Uh, God's promise but I'm sure her patience and Abram's as well was beginning to wear thin because much time has gone by verse 2 Sarai said to Abram since the Lord has prevented me notice that the Lord has prevented me from bearing children go to my slave go to my slave Perhaps through her, I can build a family. And Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So Abram's wife, Sarai, took Hagar, her Egyptian slave, and gave her to her husband, Abram, as a wife for him. This happened after Abram had lived in the land of Canaan for 10 years. All right, so he was about 85. About 85. Ten years had passed since he first arrived in Canaan. Well, Sarai's plan just had trouble written all over it. It really had trouble written all over it. Gary Stever points out the writer of Proverbs says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on 
your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6. So this plan that she's come up with leans on her own understanding and it's, it's really a, a more crooked path than they would ever imagine. Don't you think that they should have just asked the Lord if this was what he had in mind? <laughs> Wouldn't that be the thing to do? But she did all of this on her own. And it says in verse 4, he, that be Abram, slept with Agar, and she became pregnant. When she saw that she was pregnant, her mistress became contemptible to her. And, and so what we have here is the slave, Hagar, became pregnant. And then she began to lord it over uh, uh, Sarah. She took on a position of, of superiority, really. And all she said, she treated uh, her uh, mistress badly. Mistreated her badly. Verse 5 says, Then Sarah said to Abram, You are responsible for my suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and when she saw that she was pregnant, I became contemptible to her. May the Lord judge between me and you. All right. May the Lord judge between you and me or me and you. In other words, may the Lord decide who's at fault here. Who's at fault here? Well, that's what she said. What she probably meant was, this is all your fault. Don't you know it? Well, Abram was complicit by not refusing to be a part of Sarai's plan. So Abram, in verse 6, says, Abram replied to Sarai, Here, your slave is in your hands. Do whatever you want with her. Then Sarai mistreated her so much that she ran away from her. Abram essentially, he just washed his hands of the whole situation. Uh, he's, the effect is he says, You two work it out. Hagar had paraded her pregnancy before Sarai, making her feel inadequate. Now Sarai fought back. Sarai, she was a piece of work, wasn't she? I'm telling you. All right. So that was what happened. And Hagar, Hagar ran away. All right. She just ran away. Well, as it turns out, the Lord wasn't. That Lord knew what was going on, and He sent an angel or a messenger to catch up with with Hagar. So skip down to verse. Well, verse nine says the angel of the Lord said to her, "Go back to your mistress, submit to her authority." Okay. So we read then in verse fifteen and sixteen. Skip down to that. Hagar gave birth to Abram's son, 
And Abram named his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to him. All right. The angel found her and sent her back. He also, if you go down to verse 9, verse 10, the angel Lord said to her, I will greatly multiply your offspring. They will be too many to count. Now then, you know, I wish that that had never happened. I wish that had never happened. Because Islam, Islam traces its root back to Ishmael. Ishmael. And it's been tough ever since. So, so how to conclude? Well, God is the answer to our problems, whatever they may be. When Abram needed a shield, God said, I will be your shield. When Abram needed a reward, God said, I will be your reward. And he does the same thing for us today. Those are good promises. If you take God out of your problems, that won't improve anything. The more you have to rationalize and convince yourself or, or convince someone else of a plan that is absent of God, just removes God, the more you should pause to rethink your position on it. Abram and Sarai counted 10 years as slowness on the part of God to fulfill the promise. God counted 10 years as a time of preparation for the promise. Okay. We'll start next week in chapter 17. Chapter 17. We're going to go skip from the time that Abram was 86 years old to when Abram was 99 years old in our study next week. All right. Any comments or questions? Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your written word. applies to us and, and uh, it comes to us over centuries and centuries, O oh Lord. But it still has application to our lives. Speak to our minds, O oh Lord, today. Help us to always keep you in the forefront of all that we say, all that we do. Bless us now as we go to worship. May it be pleasing in your sight, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.